previously on Sociology Ruins Everything. I came on this program with the hope of finding love and a chance at a new beginning, but I fear that I may have made some mistakes that I cannot take back. Every single meal Sally makes seems to involve fish that has been microwaved to oblivion. I want to learn from my mistakes and use this experience as an opportunity to grow and become a better person. Don't get me wrong, I love fish. But there are so many other ways to cook it. Grilling, baking, pan frying. The options are endless. But no, every single time we sit down for a meal, Sally stinks up the place with some overcooked, rubbery, barely recognizable piece of fish that has been nuked in the microwave. Will Sally ever learn? Find out on today's Sociology Ruins Everything. Okay, but seriously. Picture it. Early 2021. While talking to some grad students about the latest episode of some dating show, I thought, wouldn't it be great to hear what sociologists have to say about reality television? That thought was one of the inspirations for this podcast. But to date, I've never covered the topic. Well, it's 2023, and what is a better way to start off the new year than to talk about how reality TV does and doesn't reflect our lives? Today, sociology is going to ruin reality television. I'm going to do something in this episode that seems like an impossible task. I'm going to convince you that reality television is important. But before I do that, let's define what I mean by reality TV, because let's be honest, what you see on television rarely, if ever, reflects reality. Within reality TV, there are many different types of shows, but they all share the same basic component. The shows cast real people, not actors portraying people. That's it. We can get into debates over whether a show is scripted or whether what we see is quote-unquote real life. But the basic building block of reality TV is the idea of participatory programming. That means the audience member is now generating the entertainment. Researchers Zizi Papacharisi and Andrew Mendelssohn show that the concept of participatory media goes all the way back to the late 19th century, starting with the advice columns in women's magazines. But the medium really took off with talk radio and TV talk and game shows. Yes, your beloved Jeopardy is considered reality TV. Now obviously this is a broad definition encompassing very different types of shows. Some people might say, Jeopardy is nothing like the Real Housewives of Potomac. This is where we get into our first sociological concept courtesy of Pierre Bordeaux. In 1979, Bordeaux published an influential book titled Distinction, which examines taste and class. One key takeaway from distinction is the idea that different tastes are associated with different classes. Our tastes emerge from the material conditions of our class positions. You're probably familiar with terms lowbrow, middlebrow, and highbrow art. Examples of highbrow art include classical music and literature, which require education and status as an entry point for understanding what are often serious and complicated pieces. In 1979, Lowbrow probably sounded like blasting ACDC's Highway to Hell on the radio while cruising the highway in a Trans Am. Sure, classical music and classic rock are just different genres of music, but we also experience them through a class lens. You can see a similar phenomenon with reality TV. You would think that the different reality TV genres would be organized by type. Jeopardy and the Great British Bake Off are competitions. The real world is more of a documentary. And certainly we can organize them that way, but culturally, we also organize reality TV by class distinction. 
We don't rank Great British Bake Off equally with American Ninja Warrior, for example. Despite all its soggy bottom innuendos, Great British Bake Off is middle-brow art compared with the low-brow theatrics of American Ninja Warrior contestants flying face-first into a wall. To recap, reality TV is participatory. We can see ourselves in the people on screen, which makes it feel like we can all become stars. But all things not being equal, this also influences how we categorize reality TV. Sure, Jeopardy! and The Real Housewives are very different shows with different formats, but they are also distinct in how they are culturally accepted. Think of it this way. Does Honey Boo Boo show up in the Met Gal alongside the Kardashians? Let me tell you, having never watched either of those shows, I could still speak that sentence and understand every word in it. Why? Because reality TV dominates popular culture, and when something dominates popular culture, social scientists should take notice. But I'm going to let my guests make that argument and many more. I'm Danielle Lindemann. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Lehigh University and author of the book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Hi, my name is Madeline Rubin. I am a student at Lehigh University. I am a business major in the business school, probably finance, but I've taken two sociology electives and I really enjoyed it. So here I am. Yes, move over to sociology. Join us, us. Maddie. Danielle, first, I want to start with your book. I've been reading through it and it's great. Can you can you give us a brief overview of the book? I know that's hard because you have so much in there. (laughs) So basically, it's I say it's sort of sociology 101 through the lens of reality TV. So it's like exactly probably what you would learn in most introductory sociology courses anywhere in the US at least, but it's sort of taught through the lens of our favorite reality television shows, and maybe even some reality television shows you've never watched or even thought about. Yeah, there are quite a few in there that I had not heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How how much time did you spend watching shows to, to write the book? To write the book? Well, that's a question, right? So sometimes people ask me, like, how long was the research project for this book, the process? And I say my whole life was the research process for this book, right? Or at least, like, since I was a teen and I first discovered the real world. So it's hard to kind of tease out, like, how much of it was research for the book, how many, much of it was just reality TV that I had remembered watching. Um, I did have a, a semester of sabbatical in which I did sit down and just really, like, chug through a lot of episodes of reality TV. Um, so yeah, it took several months to kind of get through all the episodes. And did the course, and Madeline, you can you can answer this as well, did the course follow the book in some ways? Did you go chapter by chapter or did you spread it out beyond the book? So I've been teaching this class at Lehigh since uh, 2016, but this is the first semester that my book's been out, so I've actually been able to use the book and actually, the book is based on this class that, I, that I've been teaching at Lehigh for the past few years. So we include like primary readings, right? Like Mills, Durkheim, there's no marks. There could be marks, but there isn't. So, you know, like primary readings, but then we also include chapters from my book where I sort of talk about the connection between the primary readings um, and the TV shows. I mean, just to elaborate on that thought, at least what I noticed from being on the student end of it was that we would have like a topic for each week, like sociology of families you know, sociology of deviance of childhood. And then I noticed when I would go read the book to like get a better sense of the topic that it was like the chapter titles of each book. So that's kind of what I noticed. I'm like, all right, so, this is, so like just read this whole chapter and you'll then you'll understand it better. Yeah, it really does lay out sociological issues in a way that's understandable through this lens of reality TV that I, I found it really fun to read. 
And you use a term in there that I love in regards to reality TV in general, which is these they're beacons of our retrograde values. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of a better description of reality TV. Uh, one example I can think of is um, most reality TV dating competitions adhere to these heteronormative standards for sex, dating, beauty, and marriage. And I'm sure there are exceptions. You list several in your book, but they're outliers, right? Why does it, and I'm, I know I'm using this term incorrectly, I may be using it incorrectly, but why does there appear to be a cultural lag with reality TV? I mean, I don't know if there is a cultural lag or if it's just reflecting our culture, right? But I do think there's, it sort of serves as a pacifier for our kind of cultural anxieties about, you know, the way that society is changing, the way their demographics are changing, right? The different roles for women and, and people of color and non-heterosexual people. So I think the fact that people still tune in to these kind of retrograde programs, you know, I mean, I think shows us something not only in terms of a lag, but in terms of kind of where we still are culturally, if that makes any sense. And we talk about that. We talked about that sort of in, in, the, in the class as well. Like when we looked at um, we do a week on sociology of courtship and we looked at the ways in which these dating shows are kind of retrograde, but also the ways in which they reflect the directions in which we're moving as well. Yeah, I think when I DM you on on Twitter, first things I said was that I I watch these shows and <laughs> Love is Blind is one of them. And I, it, it makes you wonder, the whole point of Love is Blind is to get married sight unseen, right? To propose to someone without ever seeing them. And is love blind? It's this not so scientific experiment out here shaking your head. Um, and you do go a bit into it in the book, but it, it does make you wonder, um, so much of it is based on this idea of marriage and you talk in the book about where we are as a society in terms of marriage and divorce and it doesn't always kind of match up and that that's what i'm wondering in terms of this cultural lag but again there's a homophily there right you're you're gathering around people who are like-minded as you and so you might see reality tv is showing a different version of what you're seeing if that makes sense yeah, I mean, there are some ways in which, yeah, it is like more retrograde than we actually are, right? Like it certainly is, I don't know, it's really nuanced, right? Because like, it's, and it depends like what show you're talking about to what network you're talking about. I mean, you know, because in some ways, reality TV has like really been on the vanguard of diversity in a lot of ways. Like it's showed queer characters like a long time before scripted TV really caught up and people of color have been much more represented on reality TV than other forms of media. And we could talk about those representations and right, like whether or not they're positive, right? But there's something to be said for representation. So yeah, I mean, I think like, maybe none of these questions have e easy answers, right? It is really nuanced. In some ways, reality TV does show us how retrograde we are, how retrograde we want to be, but it also kind of shows us like how far we've come as well. Natty, you don't have to raise your hand. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> I know, you're still in that mode. I was professing the question, but it just triggered a thought that something I've noticed is I actually watch reality TV, like outside of the shows that we watch. And I remember I read this online too, that CBS now has a requirement that like half of their cast has to be diversified, like diversity and right. color. And I've noticed in like the last season or two with the shows, my favorite shows are like Big Brother and The Amazing Race. And it's like, I've noticed that like people's color are on the show and that they're, they're also performing well. And it's like, they're doing well on the show. And it's just- just something I noticed too, because when I watched the shows, it was like a predominantly white cast. But then as I've gotten older, it's like I also notice these things more when I watch TV now and more conscious to it. Yeah, there's definitely been that shift, right? Like a show like, I don't know if Maddie, if you've ever seen I Love New York or like Flavor Flav, okay. like any of those. No, probably not, yeah. right? But like, 
that kind of stereotypical representation, I don't know if that would still be on the air today. Um, but I mean, I think there are like certainly still problematic representations in reality TV for sure. But yeah, maybe baby steps. Yeah, in the book, you mentioned some of these problematic representations, especially around motherhood. I found it really interesting in that, um, oh, I'm trying, Snooki and is it J-Wow? J-Wow, yeah. J-Wow. And the way that they handle motherhood, if they had not been white or um, I don't know how she identifies, but if they were not white, then they would be seen as a different depiction of motherhood and how white mothers can get away with certain things that that um, women of color cannot. Yeah, Raquel Gates made that argument um, that I'm drawing on there, where she argues that they sort of get to be bad in certain ways. They get to curse and drink and talk about their failures as mothers because they're kind of coded, whether or not they are quote unquote really white, they're, they're sort of coded as white on our screens. And, you know, in ways that like maybe women of color don't don't get to be, don't have that kind of license to be. No, just to add to that too, I just remember from class, it was talking about mommy wine culture. There was a slide where it's like white women can drink and like, it's fine. You know, it's, it's the wine culture, but then like if black women do, they're considered alcoholics. Yeah. Like even if you Google mommy wine culture, it's a bunch of middle-class looking white women, right? Cause that's like the accepted demographic for that practice. Um, so Maddie, your your final assignment for the course was to it was was it to analyze reality TV from a sociological perspective? Yeah, so it was basically to be professor for a week. So take a topic and take a show and present about it. That that's what I kind of saw as the assignment. Oh, yeah. so what did you cover? I did the sociology of dating with autism and love on the spectrum. Interesting. Yeah. What did you find? What did I find? Well, I found that they have unique nuances to their romantic relationships, that the way they, um, people on the spectrum approach relationships is different. And I looked at it through three ways. I looked at it, how they bond in a relationship, how relationships tend to be fast moving emotionally, and how they have to have lessons for dating because it's not inherently understood. So that was pretty much how I, and I used examples from the show and then found quotes kind of tied it all together to show that these are unique in a romantic relationship. Would you say that that's a positive depiction of people with autism? The show? I would say usually usually with reality TV, I'm like, oh, it's a terrible depiction. But I actually really enjoyed the show. You know, they, they really had um, confessionals from the parents, from the family. They didn't try to stereotype them or trope them. They just really let them talk and have their shared experiences. You know, I mean, the only thing I would say is they, they tried to, like, approach every person the same, like, oh, this is their issue where sometimes I feel like they didn't actually understand their full issues. And they just said, Oh, this person needs to have this script of what is your special interest. Like, I feel like they kind of had the idea that every person on the spectrum had a special interest and that just wasn't true for all the characters on the show. And that's how they wanted them to lead the conversation, but not all of them had a love for something like an intense love. So, but overall though, it was nice to hear their shared experiences. And some people, when people think of autism, they think of like nonverbal, and you know non-responsive but they showed people of all different sorts of on the spectrum people who are verbal some people who are intellectually disabled some people who just have learning disabilities some people just a range of people and it was nice to see that variety yeah no that's great i mean obviously people tend to forget that it's a spectrum right and you know, yeah people who could be highly functioning and people who it, it's all over the spectrum so it's great that the show doesn't stereotype 
And speaking of, I, that kind of reminds me of a question I had, and Danielle, Maddie, you can both join in. So I, I was interested in the fact that there's a lot of Georg Simmel in, the, in your book, um, Danielle, particularly around his work on conflict in the web of group affiliations. And people often don't think of individual or small group behaviors when they think of sociology, but obviously Simmel studied people at these levels of dyads and triads. We talk about a show, a dating show, we're talking about, you know, two people, or we're talking about the amazing race, we're talking about teams of two people. How does sociology look at this kind of, either it's like two people in a you know dating, like love is blind situation, or if it's like as a team, how does that kind of sociology interact with reality TV? Yeah, I feel like he isn't necessarily like taught enough. It's always about the big three, Marx, Weber, and Durkheim. And I feel like Zimmel should be right up there. I mean, he's talking about things like, yeah, he's micro level, but I mean, he's talking about these relationships that still dominate our lives today, right? Even though he was writing, you know, over a hundred years ago. So yeah, you know, he he looks at these sort of these little social forms, like the dyad can be the most intimate relationship, but it can also be like the most fraught with conflict. Because if one person leaves the dyad, it's over. The band's broken up. You can have a solo act, but that's it, right? Or like the triad where there's a third person in the triad who might be trying to cause conflict between the other two. And to me, I mean, maybe the way that he's he's writing is not necessarily always the most accessible and it's in translation, but the ideas I feel like are really accessible, especially to students, because everyone's been in a dyad that maybe broke up, right? Everyone's been a part of a triad where like maybe the third person is benefiting from the conflict between the other two, right? Like we see these forms every day in our lives, in our friendship groups, in our families, with our colleagues, with our classmates, right? And so to me, I don't know, to me, it's just a really kind of transparent example of how these sociological principles that have been around for, you know, over 100 years can still be applied to our lives today. Yeah, I, I guess to add to that is for sociology, what I really enjoyed about the course was seeing it's studying like the obvious, like what's around us and seeing how it relates to my life. Like whenever I've been in my life now, like a little bit, not every second of the day, but I do think like, oh, this is something that I kind of learned in sociology. You know, yes. with like, with, no, like, I, actually, though, and it's like with the groups, like, I remember we learned the triad in SOS 1, and it was like, I remember I was with a group of three, and it's like we were arguing and stuff. It was about, like, where we wanted to eat, we wanted to go somewhere in town, and then, like, my friend took my side, and the other one felt left out, and I was like, wait, this is, like, the triad, and someone's benefiting from the conflict. <laughs> like, I had, like, that split-second thought. <laughs> I love it! My work here is done. <laughs> no, I know, but it, it's cool how, you know, at least for me, being a business major, like, the the technical skills that I'll probably use in business, like my, my sociology learning may not help with it. But what I really enjoyed about the classes is saying to myself, like, it understands how I want to be treated in the world, especially learning like some of the gender units and the families. And this is what I want for my life. So more set standards for what I want to be in the world when I'm older. And it's just more and it makes me a more intellectually curious person to not just like study one thing and just to think about other things. And then I can relate to those, like how to relate with other people in the workforce. You know, you could always come back to sociology for grad school. <laughs> <laughs> or, but we meet, we also need people in business and finance yeah. who are still are using the sociological imagination, yeah, right? Some, when they're out there, good people. You don't need some finance bros. Like, you need some nice people in there, too. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, obviously, the podcast is called Sociology Ruins Everything. And obviously, thinking about reality TV, and sometimes you analyze things with a sociological imagination and it ruins it for you. Uh, this next question, I hate to do it to, to listeners who love the show, but the Great British Bake Off, how 
do we look at that from a sociological perspective? <laughs> do you watch that show, Maddie? I, I mean, I've heard of, like, I heard, you know, what I say with Lehigh's, I recognize faces, I don't know names. Like, with this one, I know the name, but I don't know the face of the show. I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it particularly. It's about a, it's about a bake-off. It's probably on the Cooking Network, I assume. Yeah, I haven't watched enough of that show to comment on it. Um, I, people are diehard fans. The one thing I will say about that show is that, I don't know if this answers your question, but a lot of people tell me they don't watch reality TV. And for like some people, that's true. But most of the time, it's because they watch shows like that and they don't consider them to be reality TV. Like I was going to ask yeah. that. So in, in your book, you talk about all reality tv from like all across different categories right there's one called game game docs is that that's uh game docs yeah, yeah like survivor yeah and then you have like the dating shows the it, so does the does a competition like like that and uh i guess would that fall under game docs or would that like it, is it considered real i mean they're all social constructs right i mean like it really eludes categorization in a lot of ways reality tv so i don't think i wouldn't get too hung up on like whether it's a game doc or not right but i mean i do think it falls at least the way that i'm defining reality tv which is maybe pretty expansively right as like television that features ostensibly real people being themselves um, but it ends primary purpose is to entertain rather than inform a large array of shows fit into that, including these like cooking shows, these HGTV shows. My sense of Great British Bake Off is it's maybe a little bit more game docky than some of the HGTV shows, which are a little bit more documentary like. But yeah, but it's interesting, right? The people don't consider that to be reality TV. There's kind of this like distancing there where they're like, well, I'm not like those people over there who are watching the Kardashians and the Real Housewives. Like what I watch is pure. Um, and it's interesting to sort of think about those kind of like hierarchies of stigma and why we think certain reality TV shows are more kind of pure or worth watching than others. I don't think that answers your question no, no. at all, though. <clears throat> it's, it's okay, because uh, the reason I bring it up is because I think the reason people love it so much is it's very wholesome and the yeah. contestants become friends after at the end of the season they show that the contestants have gone on vacations together and and throughout the season they're helping each other instead of competing in a way that you would see on like survivor or um, the amazing race and so i think people see it as anti-reality tv show competition in which you know everybody cries when someone gets kicked off even the judges it's it's that kind of show and so that's why i was thinking of how the only the the only my my issue with the show and and this isn't going to mean much because Maddie doesn't watch it and and you've only seen a little bit of it, is that uh, it's very British and that sometimes that colonialism can come across in terms of mm -hmm. uh, contestants who come from they have often have diverse contestants but sometimes there are comments throughout the show that make you remember that it's very British when it comes to these contestants so. That is my, <laughs> I don't know if that's so much sociological, but um, that is my interpretation. But I think it's the the wholesomeness that sets it apart. And that, I don't know if that's very Bordeaux, like um, high art, this like distinction that we're talking about between what is considered reality TV and what is not considered. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but. Yeah, I mean, it, everything can relate to Bordeaux, right? Um, I think, yeah. And I think there is that kind of, 
palette like it reminds me of I don't watch this show either but like Ted Lasso that's like it seems like people watch that because they see it as this kind of palette cleanser right it's just a wholesome show right it doesn't have that conflict to it which is interesting because people ask me why I enjoy reality tv and one of the reasons I enjoy reality tv is because the stakes just aren't that high <laughs> right like it's not life or death it's like will Ramona invite Luann to the barbecue next week and in life especially lately right like the stakes are so high they are life or death and so that might be one of the reasons that people are kind of tuning as kind of a palate cleanser that's one of the reasons I also watch a show like Nailed It, which is um, it's kind of it's kind of similar. It's like yeah, people win and people lose, and like but like everyone's a terrible baker, and there's just like this exuberance about failure. They're all kind of on the same page together. But yeah, yeah, I think there is that sort of that that sort of hierarchy of taste thing happening, right? Where we're drawing distinctions, and it it it's interesting to think about. Like I guess you say the Great British Bake Off is is diverse. Maybe it's coded more white than maybe some other shows, and that might account for it being sort of higher up in people's understandings of, right, like what is stigmatized and what isn't. But yeah, you can always bring Bourdieu into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so last question. What is your favorite reality show that you're watching right now? Maddie, do you want to take this one? Want me to go? Yeah. Oh, my all-time favorite is my my friend that I made in seventh grade over the summer. She said, you have to watch Big Brother. And I would go with Big Brother because I love to see, I love to see no tech, no phones. And it's, it reminds me of, I went to summer camp growing up and it reminds me of just kind of like camping, trapped in a house. You meet people that, you know, you don't know, different walks of life, different ages, different nationalities, races, and they all really do be, as much as they are trying to get each other out on the show. They're all becoming friends and it's nice to see the interactions that they have where they kind of learn about each other's backgrounds and homes and cultures combined with also the drama and, and the crap talking of each other like that's always entertaining too and how like we know what's going on on the outside but they don't know because we see all the confessionals of everyone so it's just entertaining and it's just fun to predict and strategy of someone you know wins this competition who are they going to take out how are the alliances now going to form so it's a combination of strategy learning about different people and just funny to watch with drama. So it's my favorite. I can't believe that show is still on. I yeah, know. It's, it's on a, forever. It's yeah. I mean, if it's, if I like it and if other people like it, I'm not surprised it's still on. But I love that you say that. Cause that's sort of like the bread and butter of reality TV, right? It's like throwing yeah. together people from different walks of life, like artificially kind of patchworking them together who may not have actually like been in one social space before or wouldn't ever be in one social space. And then you can really see like the impact of their social environments and shaping who they are when they come into conflict. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm watching right now is different. So my, my great, my favorite reality TV show of all time is RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> but right now, so my semester is winding down so I actually can watch TV again. So I've been getting back into Real Housewives of Potomac which I forgot I loved because like I, these, these women just like are not at all serious about what they do. They, they just like have a sense of fun. Like it, it's clear they're kind of like in on the joke and like winking along with us in the audience. And so I find it so enjoyable. Um, I'll throw two that are so completely opposite that I, I, I have an eight-year-old son. So one of them is Lego Masters, which I guess would be a, considered a, a, a game. Oh, I have an eight-year-old too who loves Legos. Oh, Lego, Masters. Lego Masters. What is this? Awesome. 
there are three seasons of it and it's will arnett he did the voice of batman and lego batman and you know you have these teams come on and they are tasked with building just really difficult lego builds from their different themes different there are a lot of gimmicks they most more recently did a go-kart episode where they had to build a lego go-kart and then race it with oh, people cool. in the go-karts um so that's one and then the other one is there's a new season of too hot to handle on netflix um incredibly yeah. bad incredibly trashy but so hilarious um i don't even yeah i can't me admitting that it, it's like i don't know if people are going to think lesser of me for saying i that. mean welcome to my world Matt, so. <laughs> but it's good it's good I, I feel like sociologists should have these interests because as you state in the book you even if you don't watch i've never watched an episode of keeping up with kardashians but yes i can name you know chloe um kim rob it, it's sad because there's such a cultural impact and, and when i read that i just was nodding the entire time because even if you do not watch these shows you know of them and you know who's on them etc right it's like i often tell people like i'm an evangelist for reality tv not in the sense that i think everyone should watch it i have i don't own stock in viacom like i have zero stake in whether people watch reality tv or like it right but like I'm an evangelist for taking reality TV seriously as an objective study when so many people are watching when it's such a cultural juggernaut when more of us can name the Kardashians than not when we've had a reality TV president. It's really time to start kind of looking at it and taking it seriously for what it can tell us about ourselves. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. This has been really fun. Thank you for having us and thanks thank for joining you. Maddie. You're welcome. It was funny. I saw the email came out. My roommates who were all living room hanging out chatting and they were like, you should do it. Like, you like to talk. I'm like, okay. So then it didn't take <laughs> too much like to talk. I knew it would be good. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it didn't take too much convincing. I was like, oh, like I'm done with school. Like, I don't want to deal with this. But then they're like, come on. I was like, right. <laughs> like, well, listen, I'm like, okay. <laughs> Hopefully by listening to this episode, you'll see reality TV in a different light. Or at the very least, you'll be less critical of people who watch reality TV. As Danielle noted, at a time when everything seems high stakes, the low stakes of reality television can act as a palate cleanser. But reality TV also says a lot about the world around us. It shows us how we categorize our entertainment based on class, and it also reminds us of the deep inequalities embedded within society. And because the genre includes shows everyone talks about, that's something worth paying attention to. I like to think my guests Danielle Lindemann and Maddie Rubin give a really good ear and notice a distinct change in how I talk throughout the episode. That's because after almost three years of avoiding it, I finally caught COVID. I'm still recovering. Seriously, stay safe out there, people. Wear a mask. This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. You can find me on Twitter at, at Matt Sedlar or the podcast at Sociology Ruins. Join me next month as sociology ruins something completely different.